Thanks, uh, Chiming. <clears throat> Good afternoon, everybody. Good afternoon. So, as Chiming said, we're going to start on uh, Haggai <clears throat> uh, this afternoon. Um, Haggai's book, the book of Haggai, really fits into the narrative of uh, Ezra. So, that's why we are taking a two week break from Ezra. And then we'll consider the message of Haggai and then return uh, to, to Ezra. <clears throat> We finished the first six chapters of uh, uh, Ezra, right? So Haggai has only two chapters, but Haggai's message really cuts right to the heart of the matter, and Haggai deals with the matter of the heart. Do I have the uh, sorry? Do I have the clicker? The clicker, wrong. May I have the clicker so that I can? So Haggai's message deals with the matter of the heart. And it is given to a group of very faithful men and women who lost their heart for God. And in the process, they lost sight of God's priorities in their lives. One of the recurring themes of Ezra, Nehemiah, and Haggai is for us to continually reform our hearts. Haggai preached 18 years after the initial group of exiles returned to Jerusalem. These group of Jews were very, very faithful uh, to God, but they lost their heart and Haggai delivered this message 18 years after their return. Similarly, Ezra, when Ezra comes back, Ezra came back, thanks, thanks, Jimmy. Ezra came back, 80 years, 80 years after the initial return. And Ezra's message was also about a reform of the heart. And then Nehemiah, which we will do uh, later on, was another 10 years down the road. So that's 90 years after the initial return. Right? And then Malachi, the last book of the Bible, uh, sorry, last book of the Old Testament, 100 years after the initial return. So we're talking about 18 years, 80 years, 90 years, 100 years. This is the recurring theme. Reform your heart. Examine your heart. Look at your heart. So really one of the points that we must not miss as we go through this series is that we got to guard our hearts with all diligence. And that's Proverbs chapter 4, verse 23. Continually watch over our hearts, examine our hearts, because it's easy, even though we are faithful, to have our hearts drawn away from God. So Haggai's message really speaks especially to those who, are, who feel jaded, who feel discouraged, who feel no longer energetic about God's work and about God's priorities. Raj spoke to us last week about discouragement in ministry from Ezra 4 to 6, right? Either because of a lack of progress or because we don't see fruit or because of relational issues. So certainly, we can let discouragement lead us away from God's priorities. We can abandon, no point serving anymore, you know? Uh, we can get discouraged. That's sort of the push factor. But there's also a pull factor away we can be distracted away from God's priorities. In other words, something else has captured our passion. 
something else has captured our hearts and draws us away from God. But regardless of the status of our hearts this afternoon, Haggai's message can re-energize us, can set our hearts on fire again, as it were, as we move towards God's priorities again. So let's have a just brief review of the background before we read Haggai 1. Towards the end of the Jewish exile, you remember God moved the heart of Cyrus to issue a decree that would allow the Jews to return to Jerusalem to rebuild the temple, right? Now, at that time, <clears throat> the Jews had been in exile for almost 70 years. So a rough estimate of the number of Jews in the whole Jewish diaspora would be in the millions, right? Of all the millions of Jews that were in the Jewish diaspora, only 50,000 took up this challenge of going back to rebuild the temple. So these Jews are the most faithful of the entire Jewish diaspora. They were the hearts that God moved, or more accurately, the hearts whose God was able to move that Chiming talked to us about in Ezra 1 to 3. They were the faithful ones. They were the ones who committed themselves to God's priorities. They embraced their identity and their destiny as God's chosen nation to lead other nations back to God. And so they went back to rebuild the temple because that was part of their destiny as a nation. And as Chiming uh, spoke to us two weeks ago, they started well. They built an altar, they reinstituted sacrifice, they celebrated the festivals, and they started to rebuild the temple. And then they stopped. They lost their heart for God and then focused instead on their own priorities. So we read in Ezra chapter 4 that the work of the Lord, the work of rebuilding the house, came to a standstill, complete stop, until the second year of Darius. That's 18 years down the road. Right? Now Haggai the prophet and Zechariah the prophet then preached to the people. So this is the message that Haggai preached to the people that we have recorded in Haggai chapter 1. Okay, so let's read this message together to see what, what did God speak to the people about? And what is God's message to us this morning, to this congregation here this morning. But before we read, let me just give you a broad outline so that you, when we read it, it will, it will make more sense. The first chapter, Haggai preached four messages to the people on three separate occasions. Right? The first occasion was 29th, 29th August. Is this on? Uh, 29th August. Uh, 520 BC. That's the first message. And the entire first message is in chapter 1, which we will deal with today. And the whole theme of that message is God's message to them to return to your priorities. Return to God's priorities. Chapter 2 next week we will deal with is essentially God's encouragement to the people as they have responded to God in initial step of obedience to continue in this step of obedience, to continue building the temple. Don't stop now. And God gave them incredible promises that we will talk about 
next week in chapter 2. God promised them greater glory, material blessings, and even kingdom, messianic kingdom authority. Great promises for the people to continue to rebuild the temple. All right, let's read Haggai chapter 1, shall we? I'm reading from the ESV. Haggai 1 verse 1. In the second year of Darius the king, in the sixth month, on the first day of the month, the word of the Lord came by the hand of Haggai the prophet to Zerubbabel, the son of Shatil, governor of Judah, and to Joshua, the son of Jehozadak, the high priest. Thus says the Lord of hosts. This is a very significant phrase. Thus says the Lord of hosts. I think in your NIV it is, Thus says the Lord Almighty. Right? But this is a recurring phrase about 12 times or so. This was used specifically in these two chapters. So it's a very significant phrase that we need to look at. These people say the time has not yet come to rebuild the house of the Lord. Then the word of the Lord came by the hand of Haggai the prophet. Is it time for you yourselves to dwell in your paneled houses while this house lies in ruins? Now therefore, you see the phrase again? Thus says the Lord of hosts, consider your ways. Consider your ways is again a very significant phrase that we will look at. Five times this phrase, consider your ways, appears in these two chapters of Haggai. You have sown much and harvested little. You eat, but you never have enough. You drink, but you never have your fill. You clothe yourself, but no one is warm. And he who earns wages does so to put them into a bag with holes. In other words, whatever you earn just flows out. No savings at all. Thus says the Lord of hosts. Again, you see? Consider your ways. Go up to the hills and bring wood and build a house that I may take pleasure in it and that I may be glorified, says the Lord. You looked for much and behold, it came to little. And when you brought it home, I blew it away. This is an active part of God, action of God that blew away, as it were, whatever uh, they, they worked for. Why, declares the Lord of hosts, because, my house that lies in ru- because of my house that lies in ruins, while each of you busies himself with his own house. Therefore, the heavens above you have withheld the dew, and the earth has withheld its produce. And I have called for a drought on the land and the hills, on the grain, the new wine, the oil, on what the ground brings forth, on man and beast, and on all their labors. Serious words, very serious words to the people. Then Zerubbabel, the son of Shealtiel, and Joshua, the son of Jehozadak, the high priest, with all the remnant of the people, obeyed the voice of the Lord their God. And the words of Haggai the prophet, as the Lord their God has sent him. And the people feared the Lord. That was the intention of the Lord speaking those words to them, calling for a drought, you know, blowing away whatever they produce. It's the people is to remind the people who it is who holds their welfare in his hands. Then Haggai, the messenger 
of the Lord spoke to the people with the Lord's message. See, once the people responded, then, hey guy, the Lord sent this message, I am with you, declares the Lord. And the Lord stirred up the spirit of Zerubbabel, the son of Shaltiel, governor of Judah, and the spirit of Joshua, the son of Jehozadak, the high priest, and the spirit of all the remnant of the people. And they came and worked on the house of the Lord their God. On the 24th day of the month, they started on the, on the first, right? In the sixth month, on the second year of Darius. So just about three weeks after Haggai preached the message, they responded and they obeyed. Very fast obedience. So what were the, lo- the words of God in chapter 1 that turned the people's hearts back to God? And what is God's message to this group of faithful men and women? You know, many of you here I spoke at the first congregation. For them, they are a little bit different because they are like me, right? <laughs> we have been Christians for so long, decades, and we have been very faithful. For you, even more, you know, because a lot of you here I see have been Christians all your lives. You are faithful. You are faithful as a faithful group of younger people. We are faithful slightly older people. But we as a congregation in PPH are a faithful group of men and women. But what is God's message to this group of faithful men and women in PPH this morning? We will consider this chapter, uh, this, this message, this first message of Haggai in three parts. The first part is in verse 5. So if you, are, if you have your Bibles, you can follow closely. We will go through this first chapter. The first message is really in verse 5 where God says, Now therefore, thus says the Lord of hosts, consider your ways. What God was calling them to do was to examine what is weighing on their hearts. The word consider in the Hebrew actually comprises two words. The first word is weigh or place, place a weight on. Right? The second word is heart, so place or weigh heart. And then conduct, oh sorry, uh, your ways, uh, consider your ways. Your ways there actually means conduct. So you put the three words together, it's weigh, heart, conduct. So what that means is that God wanted them to examine their conduct to determine and to understand what is really weighing on their hearts. Because their conduct was an expression of what was really in their hearts. They are putting off the temple, saying that it's not time to build a temple, while they busy themselves with building their own homes, reflects a heart that has been weighed down by inferior things, away from God. The heart is the center of our beings. It is the place of our deepest longings and our loves. And what we love in our hearts will drive our behavior, our actions. It will form our habits and it will give us our identity. The heart, or more accurately, what we love in our hearts 
gives us that energy, directs our lives. And as the Bible tells us, the heart is the wellspring of your life. Therefore, guard your heart. Whatever we love will weigh heavy on our hearts and it will pull us in that direction. The great Augustine, St. Augustine, understood this when he wrote in his book, Confessions, my weight is my love. My weight is my love. Wherever I'm carried, my love or my heart is carrying me. This is how we are pulled to do different, different things. This author, James Smith, comments on Augustine's insight in his book, You Are What You Love. He says this, Our orienting loves are like a kind of gravity, carrying us in the direction to which they are weighted. If our loves are absorbed with material things, then our love is a weight that drags us downwards to inferior things. But when our loves are animated by the renewing fire of the Spirit, then our weight tends upwards towards God. So for the Jews, it was their own homes that was weighing on their hearts, not the house of God. They allowed their hearts to be weighed down by inferior things, the cares of life, the desire for good things, like paneled houses that they were building. And in the process, they became self-absorbed, they became individualistic, and they became very self-centered. And that was Haggai's message to them. You notice how he emphasizes, brings them back to their individualistic and self-centered behavior through words like you yourselves in verse 4. Each of you busy with his own house. So all these words, when, when Haggai speaks these words to them, they would realize that their behavior and their conduct reflects this self-centered attitude that was in them. They have become like what Paul describes in Philippians, everyone looks out for his own interests, not those of Jesus Christ. So how should these words speak to us as a, a congregation of the faithful? We are like that initial group of exiles. We can remember a time perhaps when we were on fire, we were animated by the Holy Spirit to serve God, to work for God. But I think the first thing we need to recognize is that we who are faithful can lose that fire and we can lose sight of God's priorities when we allow our hearts to be weighed down. And this is especially so for, for those who have been Christians like me, for many, many years. We have to examine our hearts to see whether there's anything in us that is pulling us away. Have I become jaded with church, with serving church? Have we become jaded as a church? Do we have that attitude, been there, done that? Are we more cynical than excited about God's priorities? I know I have. I remember as a young Christian, about 16, 17 years old, I became a Christian when I was 12 years old. We volunteered to go 
door-to-door evangelism around my neighborhood. We wanted to saturate the neighborhood with the gospel. And even then, I think the response, you know, amongst the, the, the young people and the older congregation uh, who was there, not great. The response was not great. I still remember we were just a handful of people and, you know, we, we, we came together, we prayed, and then we went out, share our faith using the four spiritual laws. So in the language of James Smith, my heart at that time was animated by the fire of the Holy Spirit. And that was what carried me. I even remember on one encounter, an elderly man, probably about my father's age, he chided me for spending my time like this. I was 16 years old, 17 years old. I should be busy studying at home, not going around houses like this, wasting my time away, according to him. But I, I took that opportunity and shared my testimony with him. My heart carried me. Fast forward 40 years later, right? Now, evangelism explosion. What was my first response? Been there, done that. I don't need eight weeks to teach me how to share the gospel. But the truth is, I had to weigh my heart. Is my been there, done that cynicism a reflection of my own jaded heart. Is there still that animating spirit to share the gospel? Was I enthusiastic now to share the gospel? When was the last time I shared the gospel? I think God has been stirring our hearts, isn't it, amongst us. And I sense a growing excitement to share the gospel. I I was encouraged by the testimonies of those who went for Evangelism explosion. Sherry, Tim, you know, Sing Lu from my CG. They were prepared. They were trained. They were prepared. And when they were sensitive to the opportunity, they shared the gospel. God is leading us to build this church again through evangelism by calling His people to be faithful witnesses. Be prepared. Be aware. Pray. the opportunities to come. And then when they come, share. I think Chiming, was it Chiming? You sent us this New Year, uh, uh, you know, what the the New Year, the red, um, somebody sent us, Kevin maybe, Kevin, Kevin sent us for the New Year in preparation, right? And, you know, what does this red thing mean? Why do we wear red for Chinese New Year? And it's incredible because uh, we wear red because the Chinese believe that you're supposed to scare away the monster, the monster called Nian, right? And you put this red thing uh, over your household because you scare away the monster. But that is so much like the story of the Passover. And so, you know, I tried it because I, 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 I had that message and I thought, oh. So I asked my colleague, right, uh, do you know why you wear red for Chinese New Year? He said, yeah, it's to scare away the Nian monster. Oh, that was, <laughs> that was my opportunity. Yeah, I tell you, this actually is da 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 And we share with them the story of the Passover, we share with them Egypt, we share with them Disney. You know, you watch that movie and what 
the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ means. I mean, that's just simple gospel. And then as I did that, my heart became excited again. You know, hey, we can do that. So I pray that, you know, God will reanimate and excite our hearts towards His priority of sharing the gospel to fulfill Jesus' commission to go into the world and make disciples of all nations. How can we reform our hearts so that it can be re-energized and animated by the Spirit of God towards God's priorities? And that's the next part of Haggai's message. Verse 8, if you have your Bibles, you can read, Thus says the Lord of hosts, Go up to the hills, bring wood, and build the house. The first step is to recognize who is speaking to us. It's not me. It was not Haggai. It was, thus says the Lord of hosts. So that we will open our hearts in fear of the Lord. What is this Lord of hosts? Who is this Lord of hosts who speaks to us? Twelve times I told you earlier, this phrase is used. The Lord of hosts, or in the NIV, the Lord Almighty, the host there is the host of heaven's armies. This is a title of power and of authority, especially in the context of God ruling over the nations. So when Haggai repeatedly used this phrase, thus says the Lord of hosts, the Lord Almighty, no doubt the people would have been reminded that the God who is speaking to them is the Lord whose almighty hand redeemed them from slavery from Egypt. He is the same God who now brings them back after exile, back to the land, in fulfillment of what Jeremiah prophesied 70 years back. And He is the same God who directs nations, including the nation of Persia, the world power at that time, and there are kings, Cyrus, Darius, Xerxes, Artaxerxes, all of these kings are directed by God. He is, but He is also the Lord Almighty who holds our welfare in His hands. Because He reminded the people, you see in verse 9, you expected much, but it turned out to be little. What you brought home, I blew away. I have called for a drought on the land and the hills. God was telling them that, yes, I hold the destiny of the nations in my hands. I tell Cyrus to allow you to come back. I tell Darius to fund your project. I reverse opposition. That's what we read from Ezra chapter 4 to 6. The people of the land wanted to oppose the rebuilding of the temple. But God reversed it after they responded to Haggai. This is the Lord. But He's also the Lord who holds our welfare in His hands so that we will fear the Lord. And it is the fear that, of the Lord that must direct our hearts back to God. Verse, Haggai 1 verse 12. 
Then Zerubbabel, the son of Shealtiel, and Joshua, the son of Jehozadak, the high priest with all the remnant of the people, obeyed the voice of the Lord their God and the words of Haggai the prophet as the Lord their God had sent him. And the people feared the Lord. This is it. Fearing the Lord is a good thing. Fear of the Lord is an attitude of deep respect and awe for God. Recognizing that the Lord Almighty holds our destinies as a church, as individuals, and as even as nations. In fact, the Bible tells us, this is Psalm 25, that the Lord looks out, searches for those who would fear Him. This Psalm 25 is a psalm of David. And not all of us know that David's heart is described as somebody whose heart is after God. And see what he says about fearing the Lord. He says, Who then is the man that fears the Lord? He will instruct him in the way chosen for him. God will instruct him. He will spend his days in prosperity and his descendants will inherit the land. The Lord confides in those who fear Him. He makes His covenant known to them. You see, fear humbles us, makes us teachable, softens our hearts, and prepares us to receive God's Word so that God can tell us His ways. God can instruct us. No point instructing us if our hearts are not fearing Him and if our hearts are not going to respond to Him. When we fear the Lord, we will want to live in a way that is pleasing to Him, that is going to honour Him, that's going to glorify Him. For the Jews, that meant rebuilding the temple. Because that's what God told the people. Rebuild my temple so that I can take pleasure in it, so that I can be pleased, and so that my name can be glorified. God wants us to do the works that pleases Him to live our lives in such a way that pleases Him and that will glorify Him. I don't know how the recent spate of serious health issues in our church speaks to you. Grace and I visited James. James is the manager of our CSC. He is my son's age. He's, I won't reveal his age. I have his permission to share this, by the way. I won't reveal his age, but he's no older than so many of you here. Very young. And he, one of the things that he shared with me was his experience of God's grace over his life. He survived those terrible nights of vomiting and pain only by God's grace. And when his life was in danger, things just fell in place so that he could be operated on urgently that saved his life. That was God's hand of grace on his life. And if you talk to any of those who have been ill recently, this spate of illnesses, they would be able to tell you their experience of God's grace in their life. It's always grace. But there was something else he told us. He said that this was his wake-up call. He could not have imagined for the life of him, that he could be in danger so suddenly. He was totally well one night, eating a nice buffet, and fighting for his life 
few hours later. But you know, I think it's not James' wake-up call. It is our wake-up call as a church. It is a call to recognize that the Lord alone holds our welfare and our lives in His hands. Just like what Haggai was trying to remind the people, the Jews, that God holds their welfare in His hands. God holds our lives in His hands. So let's follow the example of the Jews. Let's fear the Lord, recognize that He holds our lives in His hands, and let's receive the words of God with open hearts so that we can obey the Lord in the fear of the Lord. Opening our hearts to God's Word in obedience also means that we open our hands to God's work. There was a cost to pay for the Jews in rebuilding the temple. They had to stop whatever it was they were busying their hands with so that they could now work on the temple. They were already so busy with their lives, right? Their work was unfruitful, their wages was, was disappearing, like putting money into pockets filled with holes, so they would have had to work harder just to make the ends meet. Then there was the drought, which made work even more difficult. And now, they have to start rebuilding the temple? Another stress on their lives. How were they ever going to cope? And so they also had to give funds to build the temple. They didn't have a lot of savings since all the money was going through holes in their pockets. How could they afford to build a temple when they don't have bandwidth? No bandwidth in terms of time, no bandwidth in terms of finance. But that's what reprioritizing is all about. And that is the crux of this message, right? When God animates our hearts by His Holy Spirit so that it is drawn upwards towards God, then God's priorities must take precedence. In other words, we must organize our lives around God's priorities, not the other way around. What does it mean for us in PPH to open our hands to God's work? We have heard of the financial deficit that we had last year. The budget was presented to the second, uh, second service as well. <clears throat> and the expected shortfall this year if, save, if giving doesn't change. I think this is about the only time that we have experienced a shortfall last financial year in more than a decade. I don't know. I think it's like that. We have never had an actual shortfall. It's always maybe we over budget, but in the end, we land up okay, in the black, but not last year. How do we respond to this shortfall? Of course, the leaders are now working very hard, agonizing over you know, priorities, how we should spend our money, so that we can be good stewards of what God has entrusted to us. But while they do that, this is also an opportunity for us to give. To give 
generously towards the work of God. The work of building, rebuilding the temple would not have started had the Jews began by considering whether this project was going to be financially sustainable. No. They began by obeying. The word of the Lord was taken to heart and they began by giving. But once they obeyed, and they took their first initial step of obedience, then God ensured the sustainability. God blessed them with resources. You read last week in Ezra, Ezra chapter 6, verse 8, that God made the Persians pay for the project. Darius instructed that these expenses, the expenses of these men are to be fully paid out from the royal treasury. Ezra chapter 6, verse 8 from the revenues of the trans-Euphrates, the entire region, so that the work will not stop. Incredible. When the people took that step of obedience, God unlocked the resources. Singing shared with us three weeks back about the growing work in Teban, and I think you have a write-up on this new Centre of Witness in Block 50, that we want to set up to reach out to this new sub-community within Teban, these young parents with their children through after-school care. He also shared with us that strategic work in Batam, right? A strategic Bible school that has a mission not only to send out missionaries, but to enucleate other Bible schools in Indonesia. So the obvious question that comes to our mind would be, can we really embark on these projects, strategic as they are, in the face of our financial deficit? But the other question we need to ask ourselves is, is God testing our faith? Yes, you, I'm going to give you this one-year financial deficit, and I have all these fantastic strategic work lined up. What is your priority. Is he waiting to bless this congregation and pour out his resources on us just as he did the Jews when they opened their hands to the rebuilding of the temple, even when they were facing their own financial challenges? I mean, this is a question we need to ask ourselves. And it's a question of the heart and it's a question of faith. When the Jews responded in obedience, we will deal with this in greater detail next week in Haggai chapter 2. But I just want to read you this verse that is so encouraging. Haggai chapter 2 verse 14. I am giving, after the people have responded now, I am giving you a promise, says God. All right? Now while the seed is still in the barn, before they even plant, you have not yet harvested your grain, your grapevines, your fig trees, your pomegranates, your olive trees, all these are material blessings. This is what they were looking for. They have not yet produced their crops, but from this day forward, this day onward, I will bless you. You see, as they moved into Haggai chapter 2 and they started rebuilding, they were wondering, oh dear, what's going to happen to me? You know, I have to work so hard, right? I'm already barely making ends meet. And then you want me to work on the temple. But this is God's encouragement to them. 
I am giving you a promise. You haven't even planted. You haven't even put anything to the ground. But from this day, I will bless you. This is how God responds to His people when, they, when their hearts are aligned in obedience to Him. You see, when our hearts are rightly aligned to the King, can He pour out the things on us? This is using Edwin's language. And he just spoke to us two weeks ago, right? Because then the things will not be weighing our hearts down away from the king. But when our hearts, instead, when our hearts are rightly aligned to the king, then the blessings will flow so that we can be empowered to be a blessing to others. In addition to blessing us with material things, how does God respond to people's, to his people's obedience. And this is the third and final part of God's, uh, of uh, Haggai's first message. God promises his personal presence with his people. Wow! This is in verse 13. Haggai delivered this message to the people to tell them, I am with you. This is a promise of God's personal presence with his people. You cannot get any greater encouragement than when God promises His personal presence with you as a people, as a community of God. Moses understood what this meant for the people. And that's why he pleaded with God not to send him up from where they were if God's personal presence was not going to go with them. Exodus chapter 33, verse 14 to 15. This is Moses talking to God, praying to God. If your presence will not go with me, do not bring us up from here. How shall it be known that I have found favor in your sight, I and your people? God's personal presence is associated with God's favor. God's, whether God is pleased with the people, when God says, I am present with you, God is pleased to go with His people and God's favour will be with His people. I think we get a sense of what favour means in our relationship to our human bosses. Right? When you experience your boss's favour, you feel great. You feel empowered because you know you can get things done. He has, you have his support. You feel excited about the work. And this is the favour that God promises to us through his personal presence. Right? As we read in Ezra chapter 4, verse 6, you know, chapter 4 started with opposition. You know, there was opposition to rebuilding the temple. But when Haggai preached and the people responded, pop, everything turned. Opposition was reversed. Right? The king sent a, a note back. Don't stop the work of rebuilding the temple. Otherwise, I'll take a beam from your house and I will impale you on that beam. <laughs> Serious words. No more opposition. God, through the king of Persia, reversed the opposition and, as I told you, not only reversed the opposition, provided the expenses to rebuild the temple. And I think this is one of the joys and excitement 
of being involved in God's work, that we get to experience the favour of God and we get to see His hand at work and everything falling into place. That is the favour of God. But God's presence with His people also stirs their hearts. Haggai chapter 1, 14 tells us that God stirred up the spirit of the leaders and the people and they, became, and they began to work on rebuilding the temple just three weeks after Haggai first spoke to them. That word stir up the spirit is the same word that was used in Ezra, that Chiming spoke to us, that God moved the heart of Cyrus, moved the heart of the leaders. That is that word, stir or move the heart. And what it means is really to rouse, to awaken, to agitate, to excite. God was exciting the heart of the people when He was present with them. The opposite, of course, is to be asleep, nonchalant, jaded, unexcited, bochak. Notice that this was the same group of people that God moved 18 years back. And then now He's re-moving, He's re-stirring their hearts again. So the implication for us is, you know, we need our hearts stirred. No matter how faithful we have been, we need to be re-excited, re-animated about God's work again. Enthusiasm and strength is not something you and I can drum up in ourselves. It is the work of the Holy Spirit in us. It is the work of God. It is the personal presence of God within that community that will stir the hearts of God's people. But the community has a responsibility to put ourselves in that position for God to move, for God to stir. And we do that by opening our hearts in obedience to His Word in the fear of the Lord, just like what the Jews did. God is present with us here in PPH. And God is stirring the heart of PPH, energizing us towards God, towards His priorities for us. And I believe that's why we are doing this series of Ezra, Nehemiah and Haggai. Because at the heart of the message of these books is the reformation of the heart of this covenant community, of this faithful community, so that this community can again be energized to embrace its identity as a people chosen by God, so that these people can fulfill the destiny that God has for them, to be a witness and to be a blessing to the nations. You know, even the two messages that you had, and that we all had as a church, before this series of message, deals with the same theme. Edwin spoke about contentment. Godliness with contentment is great gain. What is godliness? Godliness, he reminded us, is a God-first attitude. That's the heart. And he reminded us that we are creatures created by God to find our greatest contentment in the King, not the thing. 
And then he exhorted us to stay on the right side. What is the right side? The right side is the side of the king, not the thing. Whatever that thing is that has captured our passions and our heart. So in Haggai's language then, I will rephrase what uh, Edwin's language, in Haggai's language, it will be like this. Don't let the thing weigh our hearts away from the king. Don't let it weigh. Whatever that thing is, you know what that thing is. And we all know as a church what those things are that weigh our hearts away from God. And then, the week just before we started the message, singing spoke to us about Genesis 13. This was God's promise. And it's like, is this God's promise to us as a church? Lift up your eyes. See, walk the land. I'm going to give that to you and to your descendants. Oh, you know, lift your eyes to what God is doing or has done through this little church, is doing and continues to do through this little church. In Teban, from Timor to Indonesia to now Thailand, that we are establishing this center of witness through Alan and Bessie, Philippines, all the way, India, Pakistan. Incredible. I felt my heart stirred. I know as I was reminded of what God wants to do through this little church. PBH has already been described as a little church punching above its weight. Yes? Agree? Thank you, Kami. <laughs> but it's true, isn't it? Yeah. But I believe that with this generation, and all these young people, God is preparing us for something even greater. Amen? Come on. <laughs> amen, young people. <laughs> Why is it the older ones are the ones saying amen? <laughs> it's true. And that's why God put on the hearts of the leaders to focus on the development and the nurturing of this next generation. But God has great plans for you guys. But first, let's set our hearts right. Let's align our hearts back again. Have we allowed discouragement, distractions to weigh our hearts away from God? Let's open our hearts to His Word again. Let's, in the fear of the Lord, so that the Holy Spirit can excite us. Whether we are young, we are old, we still have a part to play in this marvelous story that God is weaving together for PPH. So that together, young or old, we can put our hands together and we can work on God's priorities joyfully, enthusiastically, and in the power of the Holy Spirit, who is present with us as a church. Shall I ask the musicians now to, to come and prepare as we respond really from our hearts?